Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here, uh, and I think that movie is such a great movie. Uh, a Few Good Men. Who's ever seen it? Okay, it's on Netflix for free. I know what everyone's watching tonight. Uh, fantastic movie that is kind of all about this courtroom scene and finding out the truth. Uh, for me, I hate it when people get away with lying. Uh, there's some sense in me that I really wish I had an opportunity to put some people that have kind of skimped on paying back loans or on treating me rightly, if I could kind of put them in a courtroom and be like, I want the truth. How great would that be? You know, you guys don't feel like it would be great? You've got no one in your life that you kind of want to tell the truth? Um, That scene is so helpful because it helps us to see how important truth is. Tonight, we come across, in this part of Luke's account of the life of Jesus, uh, a courtroom scene. Uh, It's kind of a different type of courtroom than the one that we're used to. It's a courtroom of the people called the Sanhedrin, in the Jewish temple, where Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. And He's walked into a number of people, putting Him on the witness stand, questioning Him. They want the truth. They want him to declare a number of tests because they're frustrated at what this guy is doing. So tonight, as we come along, we get to sit in the gallery and watch this trial go on and kind of come up with the conclusions of, is Jesus telling the truth? Well, how about I pray, as we look into this section, that God would help us to understand what he wants us to see this evening. Help us to see these trials and come away seeing the world the way He sees it and seeing Jesus as who He really is. Let's pray together. Father, tonight we want to thank You so much that You've given us Your Word. We ask that no matter where we've come from tonight and what's going on in our heads and in the world around us, we would see with crystal clarity by the work of Your Spirit who Jesus is. And we ask tonight that you would help us to see who we are in light of him. We pray this in his great name. Amen. We've done something different in our outlines tonight. If it's your first week here, I want to welcome you, especially. Uh, We usually have an outline where you can take notes, also helps people not fall asleep. Uh, So feel free to use that, it might be helpful. Uh, I put a line down the middle of this week because I'm going to go through these three trials. We're going to look at what the issues are, and then we're going to come back and see Jesus' answer. So only write on one side of that line to start with, and go down one, two, three, and then we'll come back up and you can see Jesus' answer as we go through, hopefully to feel the weight of what God's doing, and what they're trying to see here as Luke's put it all together. So we start tonight, and we see Jesus walks in to this Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, it was made up of the the chief priests of the Jews, the teachers of the law, the elders... It was kind of this buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish nation. It had 71 members in it, and they had almost complete freedom on religious matters. Jesus has walked into this courtroom. They called the shots. And here he's come into the temple, into this place, and the most authority of people, figures, religious leaders in the world are going to put him on trial. Test number one, whose authority Who's authority? Jesus had just come into town on a donkey. If you were here last week, you would have seen that it was fulfilling a a prophecy, something that was written um, many, many years earlier about his entry 
that he'd come on a donkey. He's walked in and people were praising him as the true and living God. He's walked into the temple and he gets all angry, starts turning over the tables, kind of gone all wreck at Ralph. And you're like, what's, what's going on? Now, when they say they want to know by what authority he does these things, that could be what they're talking about. Did you see that? Chapter 20, verse 2. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? Is it the turning over of the tables at the temple that's in view? Well, I think it might be, but I doubt that's their biggest concern. You see, since the beginning of Luke's account of Jesus, we've seen a very clear picture about who Jesus is and what he's been come here to do. In chapter 2, verse 5, he claims he has the authority to forgive sins. Only God alone has the authority to do that. He has the authority to... Uh, sorry, that was Mark 2.5, in case you're writing notes. Secondly, he has the authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to calm the storm, to hang out with the unclean, the, the socially um, outcast amongst them. He comes along and starts redefining the Sabbath. He removes all the oral laws that they'd kind of made up. He says all sorts of things that makes these religious leaders go, who does this guy think he is? I want the truth. And now he's here in their temple proclaiming good news. Now, literally, that word there that says um, what he's doing, it's actually evangelizing. He's come to proclaim the news of who he is and what he's done. It's amazing news, momentous news. It's news that had a grounding back in the Old Testament. In Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 18, it's on the screen. Jesus quotes part of Isaiah 61, and he says it's about him. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's basically claiming to be God's promised King. So they don't like this. You can imagine yourself, if you're in authority, you've got a seat on this religious board, you're like, this is pretty great. I'm like one of the untouchables, right? In this religious kind of world, they're sitting there, they're calling the shots, and this young schmuck, Gentile, no, Jewish carpenter, is what I meant to say, kind of comes along and saying, he's got all the authority. He tells you that your system's wrong, and you're kind of happy with it. You like the way that it worked and been going on for a while, and you think God had told you that's the way for you to be. So, he rocks up on the shop, you're not going to like him. You're not going to like what he's got to say, because he's a direct challenge to your authority. They walk up to this man, Jesus. Who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority to redefine God's law? Who is Jesus? Test number one. Secondly, whose money? Whose money? In Luke chapter 20, verse 20, we read this. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so they could catch Jesus in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. See, they're getting sharper. They don't like this guy at all. Verse 21, they questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, Mark tells us that these spies who came were not only from the Pharisees, but the Herodians as well. The Pharisees and the Herodians were extreme opposites. They were like the 
Montagues and the Capulets, if you love your Shakespeare, right? Two households, both alike, that hate one another. In fact, the only thing they had in common was their hate of Jesus. And so here they come together, and they use flattery with Jesus. They come up to him and speak, oh, Jesus, your words are like honey to my ears, you know? You're such a true teacher. I've just been so amazed by your amazing words. You can kind of hear them speaking and, and, and trying to speak, you know, I love the way you speak, you speak the truth, you don't show partiality. And then they come in with a sucker punch underneath to ask the question to try and trap him. What does this tell us? Number one, when people use flattery, we just call it encouragement sometimes, be very, very aware. It's so easy, isn't it, to be drawn into what someone says about you. Someone comes along and says, look, I love the way you did this or you do that. And sure, we want to leave room for encouragement. We want to be a church and people that encourage others. But flattery has at its heart deception to pull us aside. And so often someone says these few things to us and we think, oh, they really want to invest in me. They really want to have value. They, they, they value my contributions. And so I'm going to give them my time and my energy. And, you know, I really want to be very, very careful. After buttering Jesus up, they laid the trap. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, it's a great trap. See, if he answers, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then all the Pharisees who think, well, they don't want Caesar's rule over them, they're, they're kind of Jews. They think the Jews should be ruling the state. They're like, ha, see, he just, he's just like a Roman. He doesn't care for God's law. They don't want to recognize who Caesar is. How dare you pay this Roman person? They'd take him off and kill him if he says yes. But if he says no, the Herodians, well, they were kind of the ones that were in bed with Rome. They were kind of um, trying to help Rome's rule over, over the Jews. And they would say, well, Caesar's our governor. You should be obeying the law if you're here in this country, in this area. And so we're going to take you off and hand you over to the authorities and you'll be done. See, he's damned if you do, he's damned if you don't. He's in the hot seat. You can kind of imagine the sweat kind of running down his face. What will Jesus do? Test number three. This test comes from the people called the Sadducees. The Sadducees. And really, this test is a question that tries to claim that the idea of an afterlife is impossible. And who thought atheists were inventive and new? This idea's been around for ages. See, they're coming along trying to trap Jesus and say, look, we don't think there is an afterlife. And so they have this elaborate kind of trap. Have a look, it's verse 32 of chapter 18, and you'll hear about Jesus' belief in an afterlife. Chapter 18, verse 32. For he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, Jesus is speaking of himself. He'll be mocked, insulted, spat on, and after they flog him, they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. He is saying before his death, that he will rise, that there is an afterlife. I don't know if murmurs have been getting around that he claimed this. I don't know if these guys are going, who is this guy? Thinking that there's life after death. We don't believe in life after death. We don't believe in the resurrection. And that's really the core belief, or some of the core belief, of the Sadducees. They didn't think there was anything after you die, either upstairs or downstairs. That's what you call annihilationism. You end life and that's it, worm food. That's all that we are. We eat we drink, tomorrow there's nothing. And that's why they were called the Sadducees. Did you know that? They were called the Sadducees because they were sad, you see. <laughs> they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
And I want to put it to you that life that lives and then we die is sad. Do you see? (laughs) So they come up with this. I promise all my jokes are like that. Sorry. (laughs) So they come up with this argument then to try and disprove life after death. And it's an odd argument, okay? They know Jesus believes in the Old Testament, and they only believed in the first five books, Moses' books uh, of the Old Testament. And so Moses then had this law in the Old Testament that if a man married a woman, okay, I've got that, and then the man, the husband, dies, and there's no children to look after the woman in her old age, then the man's brother, if he was unmarried, should marry the woman. That's a bit weird. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, your brother marries someone, they don't have any kids, he dies, you're up. That's what it was. Now, why did he do that? God had set that up to love and care for and protect women. So there was no social security in this age. The way that they looked after one another was that the children would work and look after the parents. Newsflash, one of the responsibilities for us as Christians is to look after our parents. To have that and not just kind of outsource it to the government, happy to take the pension and all that sort of stuff, but we still have a responsibility to look after them. And here, that was done by the brother saying, well, I'll marry you and we can have kids, and then those children can then look after you in the long run. We're so taken in by Hollywood, thinking that marriage is about love. Now, you want to love one another in marriage, but it's not firstly what it's about, it's about serving God and filling His earth and seeing Uh, his pattern of life go out across all of society. One man, one woman, for life. And then the story goes, so what happens then, this is all about the resurrection, okay? So what happens then if the brother dies? Well, the next brother then has to marry the wife if they have no children, so until there's children. And this keeps going on and on and on. And in in the illustration in the passage, it's like, fire out, like seven times. Can you imagine being the seventh brother? I'd be freaking out. Like, no. And the other question you've got to ask, like, what is she cooking? All of them die. Well, there's something going on there that I'm like, dude, run. I don't know. So then they ask Jesus. So this has gone on seven times, right? If there's a resurrection... Which one will be a husband? In other words, whose wife will she be if she married all seven? See, they think this is a knockdown argument. If you take Moses' law, uh, that, you know, she can't be the wife of all of them. So they understand that polygamy is actually wrong. Even though there's no direct command in the Old Testament, marrying uh, multiple people is kind of, in this thinking of the Sadducees here, a, a wrong way of thinking. Because they're thinking the right way is, well, whose wife will she be? if there is a resurrection, because obviously you can't have multiple husbands, that's not right. And so therefore, their argument is, there's no resurrection. You got you, Jesus. Didn't see that coming. Is there life after death or not? Each of these tests all put Jesus on trial. They all test him to see where he can get trapped and deny either what he's said or get taken away and put under the rule of those around him and punished. But when we hear Jesus' answer, we start to see that there's something else going on here. 
See, at first appearance, it seems like Jesus is on trial. But each and every time they come to him, in Jesus' answers, he flips the whole trial on its head. It's like he hops out of the witness stand, walks over to the, judgment, the, the judge's bench and puts them in the witness stand and then comes to them and asks them the question. So come with me. Let's have a look at his answers. Number one, whose authority? The Sanhedrin want to know by whose authority Jesus did these things. So he answers their question with another question, right? It's just Zoolander. It's where Zoolander got it from. Who, again, uh, maybe I'm not too... Who's seen Zoolander? Oh, that's better. I don't know if that's on Netflix, sorry. But that's what he says, right? Let me answer your question with another question, right? Okay, I'll get better movies. <laughs> maybe you can write down some tips for me later. I'll get up to speed. So Jesus answers their question by asking them a question. You don't question me, I question you. He, he asks about John the Baptist. He says, was John the Baptist, was his baptism that he did in the Jordan from heaven above, was it from God or was it from man? Now, this is, this is great because at this moment, Jesus is kind of polarizing them. See, what had happened uh, in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, is that Jesus had gone down to be baptized. At that moment, heaven opened and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. He's pointing them back to what happened at his baptism, of who he is and what authority he speaks. But he does it in a way that condemns them. See, he says, was John's baptism from God, a God thing? Or was it just from man, just made up? Now, if they say it was from man, there are so many people following John. He was like John the Baptist, crazy rock star guy. Did you like that? I didn't even, even know I said it. John the Baptist. <laughs> wow. Everyone was coming out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Everyone's going, John's a prophet, eating grasshoppers and wearing funny stuff. But he's kind of, he's a prophet from God and he had this following. And so if, 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 if they say, oh no, John's baptism, it wasn't from God, because they don't want him to actually agree that this thing happened about Jesus' sonship from, from the Father, then all the public are going to turn against them. Because he's, he's, he's just the man of the moment. But if they say that it is from heaven, then suddenly they've got to believe him in what he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they're trapped in their own logic. And they reply like a little kid when they're in trouble. Have you ever seen a little kid when they're in trouble and they know what they've done wrong? Uh, and you're like... So, did you do this, or did you do this? And they go, I don't know. Oh, you know, the Nutella just got smeared all over my face. I don't really know how I got there. And you look at them in their eyes, and like, like twitching, and you're like... <laughs> they know if they speak, they're going to get in trouble. They're acting like children at this point. Because if they speak, the implications would be that they need to trust Jesus. They know full well what's going on. I've got to ask you today, are there areas of Jesus' authority that you're refusing to recognize? As you come across this man that you meet who's flipping the courtroom around, are there claims about his character or his word that you know to be true, but you kind of plead ignorance on? Oh, that's a hard part of Scripture to understand. You know? I don't know. I can't work that bit out. And really what's going on, we don't want to listen to the one who is God the Son. 
And so we distance ourselves or say we don't know or kind of come up with ways of getting out of it rather than let Him be an authority in our life. Are there areas of your life that you think you know better than the one who made you? If that's you today, whether it be some smaller area of the Christian life or whether that be your whole life, if you are running from checking out the authority of Jesus, can I say, come back to Him. Meet the man who is facing us today and showing us His authority. Let go of trying to run our lives our way, of trying to hold on to areas, of trying to bring our logic in and say, you know what, I think I know better than you, creator of the universe. And come and meet the one who made you and sustained you. But Jesus just doesn't stop there. They wouldn't answer his question. And so he won't answer theirs. He says in verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now this isn't Jesus acting like a little kid back. You won't tell me, so I won't tell you. Like that's not what's going on. What he's showing is that the way we relate to Jesus affects the way Jesus relates to us. The way we relate to Jesus affects the way He relates to us. If we are unwilling to investigate Jesus, to hear His claims, to lay open our lives to the implications of who He is and what that means for us, then Jesus refuses to reveal Himself to us. He refuses to come in and show us who He really is. Look at um, the last chapter of Luke, Luke 19, in, in verse 26, about the parable of the miner. He said something, and I think this is what He's referring to. He says this, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Okay, Jesus is showing that if you do not come and be willing to listen, you won't see Jesus because he won't reveal himself to you. But if you do come and listen, if you do open your life to the authority of who this man is, well, then it changes everything. Answer number two, whose coin is this? Whose coin is this? This time, Jesus does exactly the same thing. He sees their hearts. He he knows they don't really want answers. They're just trying to test him with the flip of a coin, right? And so he does what he always does puts them in the witness stand and says, I will question you. He says, whose face does this coin bear? Whose image and inscription is on this coin? That's a brilliant answer. Because the idea is that you should give it to whoever's image and inscription it it bears. And the point here is that the coin bore Caesar's portrait. His face was on it. It's kind of like Queen Elizabeth is on our coins. Lizzie. You know, it's her money, and part of the commonwealth. And her, her, her face is on that. Well, so Caesar's face was on that, showing his rule, maybe in an even stronger sense than Elizabeth, no disrespect. Uh, his face was on it. Whose image was on that coin? Well, Caesar's. So, of course, you should give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. You're living in the government that Caesar has set up. You're enjoying the blessings of what he has done. Uh, and so Jesus is saying you should give to whose image is on the coin. But it's very interesting, isn't it? that Caesar is a man who is made in the image of God. What does it mean to have an image on a coin? Well, it's saying there's a picture of him, an image, and when humanity were created, we were created to image God. And so as you see 
this human, this image bearer, we're supposed to reflect to the one whose image we are made. Whose image is on that coin? Well, it's an image of Caesar who images God. And so God is the one who owns everything. He's the one who made everyone. Jesus answers brilliantly. Caesar's face is on it, but his face images the true and living God. Jesus expands their minds to help them to think through, have you recognized who this God is? Do you know who you are dealing with when you speak with me? I'm the one who made everything, who is the image of the invisible God. Have you recognized that all we have has come from the true and living God? Every day when we look in the mirror, we're not looking at our hair and what's sticking up or frizzy. We're not looking whether our eyebrows are plucked evenly or the kind of our, our foundation is applied. That's just the guys, right? Um, we're looking at a picture that is to remind us that we are made in the image of God. Luke records their response. They sound deflated, frustrated. Chapter 20, verse 26. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Jesus flips the courtroom on its head. You will not question me. You've missed who I am. I will question you. And they are silenced. The third test. Whose wife? Which husband will be hers at the re resurrection. Jesus comes to these people who, who believe the first five books of the Bible and he, and he proves to them from the first five books that there is life after death. And he does it in a kind of a weird way. He does it by quoting Moses at the burning bush. Now, if you remember the burning bush incident, uh, Moses comes up, there's this bush on fire. I don't know why they call it the burning bush because it never burned up consistently on fire. So it's been the non-burning bush if it burns but it doesn't burn. I don't know. But there it is, and then Moses hears this voice, and eventually he works out that this, this voice is the true and living God. And he says, Who, what should I say? Who sent me to say this? And he says, I am has sent you. I am. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Listen to Jesus' response, and we'll kind of piece together what he's saying here. Verse 37. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised. You're like, okay, how? where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You're like, yeah, okay. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. And this is where we've got to understand that God actually wants us to look at the grammar of Scripture. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, he's dead now and gone and finished. I will be the God of Abraham. Well, that would still prove the same point. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They're all dead. How is God able to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If they are dead, he's saying they're still alive. Death is not the end. There is more in plan, in God's plans for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is more to life than we eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus uses their own strong suit, twists against them and say, see, God says when He speaks to Moses, the one whom you only listen to, when you read the first five books of the Old Testament, that He still is the God of those who have died. He flips it on their head. What do all these tests show us? Why does Luke compile them all together here and then 
what's he trying to show us as we get through this? Well, I think he's placed in the middle of this a parable. It helps us to understand the critique of these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and, and what they're trying to do, and I think a critique of us. He has this parable that, that we read, that Ash read earlier, that is just an odd kind of story. And you're like, man, what is going on? It's a parable about a man who owns a vineyard. He kind of gets the grapes and makes them all grapey and droopy and kind of gets these people to come along and rents the vineyard out to them so they can farm grapes, make wine and fruit juice and ribena. Like, it's all good. And, and so these guys are running this vineyard. Uh, they, they rent it out. Everything's fine. They're loving it. They're like, this is great. People are coming to the lemonade stand or the, or the wine stand out the front. You can kind of just picture it, right? Everyone's hunky-dory fine. And then it comes time to pay the rent. And so the landowner, who's rented it out to these tenants, sends one of his servants along. The servant comes along and goes, oh, hey, guys, looks like things are going well. The farm's working out well for you. Um, just need to give the rent to the landowner now. And they bash him. You're like, what? Where did that come from? Who does that? When, when, when the real estate agent comes around and says, oh, we're just doing an inspection, who, maybe don't put your hand up. But who, would, <laughs> who does that? Like, that's so wrong, right? And you're like, why would someone do this? And then we read that the, the kind of landowner, I don't know, maybe he thinks that the first servant might have been a little harsh. So he then sends another servant along to kind of say, look, you guys need to pay the rent. You need to sort this out. And no, it doesn't happen. They, go, they bash the second guy as well. And this just goes on until the third one that they wound, they cause serious damage to. Now, at this moment, the, the landowner, he could have gone, right, I'm going to sort these people out. I'm going to rock up, and I'm going to take them away, and I'm going to destroy them. I own this land, they're going to get off my property. But he, he, before he brings down that, he, he sends one more chance. He shows his compassion to the people and sends his son, thinking maybe there's just something deluded about these people. I've sent messenger after messenger, servant after servant. They've rejected and bashed all these people. Maybe if I send my son, they'll realize what sort of situation they're in what sort of problem they have made, and they will pay what they owe. But the tenants see the sun coming, they recognize him, chip off the old block, and they're like, this guy, I know, let's kill him, because if he's the only heir, and then we're occupying the ground, then we'll, we'll get this when the old man landowner dies, we'll just bash up everyone that comes. And so let's just kill this guy so we can live without the kind of knowledge of a landowner without having to give him any money. We can just enjoy life, drinking wine, eating grapes. What a life! This is brilliant. And so they kill the son. What is this parable about? Why has Luke put it in here? Why has Jesus said it? Well, Jesus is saying, I am that son. You people who are putting me on trial and coming to question me and try and work out who I am and testing me, you do not realize this is my Father's earth. And you have been sent messenger after messenger after messenger. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets come, kings come. God even spoke to them through a donkey and a hand riding on the wall, but they still refuse to listen. Now the sun has come, I'm standing in front of you and you put me on trial. Have you recognized who Jesus is? He is God the Son. He is the one who created the universe. He is the one that is in control of all things that God has given all authority to. Have you, the, have you really recognized this Jesus? 
Or are you living in the world like the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sanhedrin? Consistently putting Jesus on trial, not trusting in His Word, not letting Him rule your life, thinking that you know how to live life better. (laughs) I feel myself going there often. Like, I think I know what's better than what God has said, what Jesus has said, and I forget. This is God the Son. Are you living in God's world right now? Loving God's things, the relationships He gives us, the air we get to breathe, the food we get to eat, but ignoring the one who owns it all. Every time you look in the mirror and you see that image of God, do you see how amazing is it that God allows me to live? Or do you say, what a beautiful specimen. Look how great I am. Or perhaps, oh, I really don't like what I see and I wish I felt better because my identity is tied up in what I look like rather than remembering you are a child of God. Each and every one of us today, as we come to this passage, is standing face to face with the crown prince of the kingdom of eternity. His name is Jesus. And the question for us is, what will your response to this son be? See, the tenants in this parable, I think they react just like we do so often. If we can just say that there is no landowner, we can kill his servants and his kind of um, in his son, then we can just live as if there is no God. Is that not what atheism is trying to do? There is no God. Get that crazy idea out of your head and just live life. This is it. Eat and drink and then we die. It's far better life. Just, just forget about it. You don't have to have any morals or kind of any absolute morals at that point. Jesus, you know, he was a good prophet, no doubt. He, he, was, he was an amazing teacher, a religious leader, we demote him all the time. We drop his authority in our lives and in, in the way of speaking into the world around us so that we can do whatever we want. I'm guilty of it. Would that be just over little areas of our life, over what we think about his word? Would that be our whole lives? He says, my life, my vineyard, I'll live in it how I want. Do you have the mindset of these tenants? The mindset of these Pharisees and those in the Sanhedrin? Are you coming along to Jesus tonight thinking about the way you want to live rather than what he says? It got me thinking, where do I test Jesus? Where do I kind of want to diminish his authority? Where don't I believe who he truly is? Do I believe he really is sovereign and control over everything? And live like it, not all the time. Do you honestly think that prayer is more valuable than action? That speaking to the God who is in control of all things, that everything in his, in his hands is more valuable than me just trying to do it on my own without him? Do you believe Jesus is actually coming back like he promises to? Or do you think, ah, oh, whatever? Do you believe your actions will be judged by this man? That we will stand before him and does your life reflect that reality? Do you believe that knowing Jesus is better than any other joy or pleasure this world has to offer? Do you believe that Jesus is sustaining you right now? Not the food you ate, the exercise you did? Do you entrust your life 
your reputation, your finances, your time to the one who is in control of everything? Do you let Jesus' word shape the way you think about purity, about relationships, about honesty and truth? Do you believe that his word is true and that we will have to stand and give account? Or do you, like me, so often fail and put myself on the throne and start testing Jesus? See, what this section of Luke shows us is this. In our seeking the truth, thinking that we're entitled to the truth, the making up of our own truth, that there is only one judge. That's the truth we need to hear. There is only one judge. While we so often question Jesus and put Him on trial and test Him, we're hearing tonight there is only one judge and we'll stand before Him. His name is Jesus, and He is not on trial. We are. At every trial in this account, Jesus has been accused, but every time, He has flipped it back on its head to show the hunted has become the hunter. The judged begins to judge. The great mistake of society, well, one of them, is that we think God is answerable to us. I want to warn you tonight of the danger of that view. The danger of the view that I can question God. That I can stand and say, how dare you work this way, God? Do you see how dangerous it is for these people who put Him on trial? Every time they end up silent or lying. Imagine what it will be on that final day when Jesus comes back. And we say to him, I don't think you did this the right way. You know, no offense. We've got to get our courtroom furniture right when it comes to this man. We are in the witness stand. We are being questioned. And he is the judge. He's on the bench and he's viewed everything we've ever said, done and thought. He knows my life and he knows yours and he knows that we haven't treated him as we ought And the hammer comes down, bang, on the bench, guilty for every single one of us. But then we're about to see the most amazing judge you have ever seen in your life. For this judge will stand up, will walk around the other side, after giving the guilty verdict on all of us, and walk to the place of being punished for us. He pays the punishment. His death in our place, the cross, is what Jesus is doing as the right one who will judge us, the one who is paying the price for us. The righteous judge offers to pay the punishment that we deserve. He offers to die in our place and take the rap for what we have done. Have you ever known a judge like that? The one who knitted you together, the one who made this world with a word, loves you that even even despite our rejection of Him, even despite the way we treat Him time and time again, He would die for us. It's my prayer that tonight you see this judge. You see this God who has died in our place and is offering us life. 
this is a judge I want to trust. This is the judge that I want to be before on that final day. The one who knows I'm guilty, but has paid the price himself for me. Friends, every single one of us will need to come before this judge of the universe. And the only way we can stand right beyond that moment is if we trust in his death in our place. If you want the truth tonight, then please recognize he's speaking right to you from the pages of the Bible in front of you. His name is Jesus and your response to him will determine eternity. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this great king? Well, Luke then lifts our eyes in this story to the Pharisees and a widow. He sees the Pharisees dropping money into this account and kind of into the, into the, into the, the bank of the church. What are you going to call that? The collection doobies. And sees them kind of doing it to praise themselves and going, look at this, they're such religious people. And then Luke tells us the story of a widow who had nothing but gave everything. And he's trying to help us to compare the two, these Pharisees. It's a judgment on them. Look at them, living life like they think they've got it all right, saying, look at me, everyone. I'm the glory of God. I'm, I'm great. I'm living this exactly the way I ought. Yet this widow comes along quietly and gives all that she has. Why does Jesus put this story here? He's showing the judgment on this Sanhedrin. How hypocritical, how hollow. You don't get it at all. This one that you are questioning is the king of the universe and he deserves everything. Not in order to be saved, but because he will save them. The Jesus that we are looking at is the king of the universe and he deserves everything. Not in order that we might be saved, but because he's already saved us. Let me put it to you today, that if you want the truth, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to Jesus to recognize He is the judge. And we owe Him as the true and living God everything. We are to live pouring out our lives in response to Him, giving Him access to every area of our life, putting Him first in every way. How dare we think we know better than this one who made us and sustains us? He is the King. And you and I are on trial. The question is, will you trust Him as the true and living God? Will you let Him have authority over your life? Or will you keep pretending it's just too hard, it's just too much? For some of you tonight, maybe tonight is the night that you need to say, right, enough's enough. I need to get serious with this God. I need to put Him first, recognize who He is and how great He is and serve Him. And can I encourage you tonight to do business with God? For others of us, we're sitting here thinking through areas of our life that really aren't under His authority. Don't push away God's Spirit poking us. Tell someone, chat with someone tonight about how you're feeling convicted of this area of sin or an area you haven't put under His authority and come to Him. Pray, repent. Ask someone to pray with you and to walk alongside you. Whatever you do, do not keep pretending it's okay. God knows. 
Jesus died for you. So come to him and accept the forgiveness he's offering and put your life under him. The question for all of us is, as we see this king, will you trust him? Let's pray. Father God, we confess that so often in life we come and we put you on the witness stand. We look at Jesus, your son, and we ask all these questions and we don't treat you as the true and living God. And for that, Lord, we are sorry. Tonight, help us recognize who we are. Your creation. Sinners who've been loved and saved by your Son. We pray that tonight you would draw us to yourself, that we would no longer run from you, whether it be in smaller areas of our life or our whole lives. We pray tonight we would see Jesus with the authority he deserves. Thank you so much for Jesus' death in our place. Thank you for the joy of knowing that we can stand forgiven because of this judge's death for us. And Lord, fix our eyes on the joy that it is to know this King, not only as our judge, but as our Savior and Lord. We pray tonight you would lift our eyes to see Jesus clearly, that your Spirit would clear away our brokenness and our sinfulness, that we might live for you in every area. Lord, by your Spirit, through this word tonight, do business in our hearts. We pray this in your Son's great name. Amen.